Hello, Spotlight friends. Welcome to another episode of Ave Spotlight. Today is another part of our conversion story series. I'm so excited. Today we have Leah Labresco Sargent. She is very, very accomplished. We're so happy to have her. This is like the conversion series of some of my favorite people. So I've at this point, we've heard from Eve Tushnet, Gloria Purvis, and I'm so excited to have Leah here. She is a writer. She has two books, one with Ave Maria Press called Arriving at Amen, which is about her conversion story, and her other book, Building the Benedict Option. She also runs Other Feminisms, which is a substack that is all about advocating for women, um, a substack community. So we're really happy to have you, Leah. Thank you so much for being with us and sharing with us all about your conversion story. Thank you for having me on. Yes. Oh my gosh. You are, and I'm so serious. You are so, so accomplished. I was reading your webpage and I was like, oh my gosh. So how do you find time to do everything that you do and also be a human being and, (laughs) you know, raise people and just like live a life? How do you find the time? Well, a big part of it is that my husband and I really work together to make sure we get to do our creative projects Mm -hmm. and be parents and hold jobs. So that is a complicated juggling act, but it means at the beginning of the week or the beginning of the day, we say, you know, what do each of us have do? You know, what are we going to do about it? You know, what's a good time for me to work versus a good time for him to work? And we trade off a lot. Mm, I love that. There's nothing like a supportive boo to really help get through those, you know, those days. It probably makes it a lot better. So I would love for everyone listening to hear a little bit about you. Can you introduce yourself? Sure. You know, I grew up as an atheist on Long Island. I grew up in a pretty non-religious community. My family wasn't religious. I didn't know of anyone personally who actually was religious. You know, I know of people who kind of went to synagogue on Saturday, but didn't practice in a big way. And so it wasn't really until I went to college that I met Christians I knew in real life, as opposed to the kinds of Christians you see on the news complaining about things. And it made a big difference to me to meet people who were really smart and for whom their faith was part of their interest in learning and examining ideas, not this weird exemption to their intellectual life. Wow. Oh my goodness. So how did you grow up then? Like what, I mean, I'm interested in how do you get from, with all of my guests that we've had on this convergence here so far, I think one of the most intriguing thing is how do you get from living your life the way it is to now being where you are? And like, did you meet someone? Was it a community thing? Was it just kind of like an inquiring minds? I've read a little bit about you asking lots of questions, kind of having lots of conversations. So I would love for you to share how you, how you got to where you are. Yeah. So I belonged to a debate group at college and it was a weird debate group. It wasn't competitive debate where you're arguing sides chosen at random to see how good you are at arguing. Mm -hmm. Everyone was only arguing for things you actually believed and there weren't any judges and no one gave you any prizes. So you might ask, why do this? Like why get together at seven on a Thursday night and keep going to like one in the morning? And the answer is that the only prize was that you might change the way someone lives the rest of their life. Or you might change your mind and change the way you live for the rest of your life. Wow. And so it really was through you know, that style of debate and that community around debate. We weren't exclusively debating religion, but it'd be something where even when we were debating a topic, 
that wasn't explicitly about religion. You could hear how people's faith shaped the way they viewed their life, shaped their view of what a good life was, what kind of sacrifices were worth making. And one thing that happened to me over the course of my four years at Yale is that, you know, without changing my mind then about God, I found more and more of what my friends who were Catholic were saying to be compelling. Mm. I didn't think it was all true, but I went from someone who entered as an atheist who thought that Christianity was almost too stupid to be entertained. You know, I, had a, I had a real yeah. sense of this <laughs> lowest common denominator, you know, just read the Bible by yourself, come to your own conclusions. It's mm. all obvious. You know, poor illustration of what was then the riches of the magisterium, a whole lineage of arguing and examining the text and returning to tradition. And so I started to get to the point where I thought, well, I don't think Catholicism is true, but I think it works. I think if it were true, it wouldn't fall apart. And I found parts of it compelling. I couldn't accede to something I didn't think was true at its heart, even if I thought it all held together. It'd be like saying, you know, I find the Harry Potter books so compelling, I'm going to pretend they're real. Mm. I can't pretend Catholicism is real without a reason to believe that it is true. Mm. Oh my goodness. Wow. What? So a real ascent of the mind then. So what were the, what were some of the things that were compelling to you? What was attractive to you? Especially as someone that came in kind of like, you're an atheist, you can kind of see, well, you know, like it works. So then how do you find those things, some things attractive? One of the things I found attractive about Catholicism from the start was some of its teachings on marriage. It made a lot more sense to me that marriage is something that creates a family that then can't simply be undone as though it were any other contract, like buying a car, right? Mm. You know, and in some ways, that was already an answer to me to some of the questions people have about the strength of the church's teaching on marriage, because I could have a terrible sister mm. and it might even be necessary for me to live apart from her if she were terrible, dangerous, et cetera, but nothing would stop her from being my sister. She would just be my terrible sister. Mm. And in a similar way, I found it more compelling that when the church spoke about what marriage was, it spoke about it as a family-making thing, a covenantal thing, not just a choice you make together to go with as long as it works for you, but this unbreakable bond when made correctly, such that even if it were necessary to separate from a spouse, you'd be separating from your spouse who would remain your spouse, burdensome even, because that's what family can be. They're people we can't choose to walk away from completely. Hey y'all, this episode of Ave Spotlight is brought to you by Catholic Gift Box. They have numerous gift boxes aimed to inspire and build faith in many Catholic devotions that are available to us. I know for me, it is wedding season and baby season during the summer, and I'm so grateful for Catholic Gift Box. They have boxes that are filled with Catholic devotions with the spiritual theme. So each box is based on a theme or event, including Holy Communion, returning back to Catholic the Divine Mercy, you name it. They have also available a children's activity box that helps with inspiring lessons for each age group, which I know is awesome. I already plan on getting one for my goddaughter, who is three, and I'm sure will love it. Make sure to check them out on catholicgiftbox.com and Facebook to place your order today. God bless. What was your process to then be like, you know, I'm going to become a Catholic person. I have had a few friends myself, one that was very atheist, who 
eventually through times of just hanging out with, you know, some like Catholic friends, including me, and we would just hang out with him and we'd be like, yeah, okay, Sean, like whatever you want. <laughs> like, it's cool. And he, we, you know, we just had mutual respect for each other and it was fine. And then I remember one day, and he always asked lots of questions and we all kind of prayed. But one day he said like, hey, you know, I think I'm going to be in RCIA just mm-hmm. to see what, you know, I just want to get some more answers and whatever. And and now he's like such an, I mean, he was all, always a great person, but such an awesome like Catholic husband and father and like rocking it. And it's just amazing though, the steps it took and the process, because it really is, I mean, it's such a change of life. And he had to change so many things about his life and then like, you know, his familial relationships and so many things were different. So how then were you, what was your process? And then also how was your, how was your familial kind of receptivity? What was that like? Well, I think initially I I tried to sign up for RCA before I wanted to be Catholic. I thought it'd be best to learn about the church from the church, not just from my weird debate friends, but this was at college. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the priest who ran the campus ministry told me he wouldn't sign me up. I think my, as you may get the impression, like my college debate friends had a lot of very faithful Catholics in the group, you know, real love for God, but we're also real crazy people. Again, with the like up till 2 a.m. debating, we're banned from reserving rooms on campus sometimes because things got kind of raucous. So I think the priest was suspicious. He was like, I don't really want to add some debater who isn't committed to converting. And I don't think that was the best choice for him to make, but I was turned away there. So it kind of proceeded just by my own inquiry and own conversations. It was really that process of inquiring about the church with my friends and reading with them. And the process of examining my own atheism, because the more I talked to my friends, the more I loved my friends, and thus the more I wanted to offer them something. I didn't, I didn't want them to ever just stop being Catholic. I wanted them to stop being Catholic and become something, right? Mm. Atheism doesn't tell you how to live your life. You have to have an additional philosophy on top of that. Mm. And it was an examining that I kind of had this you know, wandering path between where I'd started as someone who was a stoic, who was really interested in Immanuel Kant's kind of rule-based morality, to someone who was really compelled by virtue ethics, this idea that doing the right thing isn't a matter of straining against your instincts, you know, of following your duty with kind of as few feelings attached as possible, but of being conformed to the pattern you were made for. Mm. And when you say virtue ethics that way, it does sound suspicious for an atheist to hold because <laughs> there's there's always that question where you're kind of directed towards this image of the person rather than just an abstract system of rules. Yes. Where is that image coming from? It's not evolutionary biology. There's nothing morally trustworthy about that process by itself. So how is it that I have this sense of where I'm going? Mm-hmm. And it was by continually examining that question that I kept finding that I didn't have an answer to it. And I got to a point where I had to look at the things I believed. I didn't believe in God. I believed that morality was absolute and independent of me. Something I could study, something I could learn to embody, but not something I could change. Something like math, right? Something we have to receive as a gift. And I believed I had access to this transcendent moral law, even though I couldn't point to where it was kind of fixed in the physical world or exactly how I, who was not transcendent, had access to it. Mm. And so those were, those were the three things I had trouble with. No God. Yes, absolute moral law. No, I don't have a way of explaining how I have access to it. And ultimately, 
the more I pushed on those, the thing I was most willing to give up was my disbelief in God. I didn't believe in God. I believe that morality was transcendent and absolute, the kind of thing it has to be to matter, right? Mm. It's not a matter of just social conventions. Mm. And I believe that if it were that, it was hard to explain how I had access to it. You know, how did I come to know this transcendent pattern that's never perfectly embodied in the world? You know, what was leading me towards it? And when I kept examining those three kind of ideas and tension, I believed more that morality was what it had to be than I disbelieved in God. So if I had to give up something there, what I was most willing to give up was my atheism. Wow. Oh my goodness. And wow, that's such an astounding thought. I'm thinking about how I was in college and I do not believe that I put that much thought into many things. So well, I, and I bet your college let you reserve rooms, oh, right? Yeah, Versus absolutely. Like- <laughs> absolutely. Yes. I didn't know I was speaking to such a rebel too. So it's like, <laughs> oh my gosh, you know, wow, that's so amazing. And I'm, I'm so intrigued by you sharing, like, you know, you knew that morality was something that had to be a, a way, right? But then kind of doing an examination of your mind and saying like, okay, well then how can I get there? Like, I don't really know, but you're not willing to let that go, you know? And then, so then, but let's say, you know, I'm willing to kind of flex a little bit on not believing in God. So then how then, how did you feel when you kind of made that distinction to yourself of like, well, I'm willing to kind of flex a little bit on my belief in God, not that you were being flippant at all, but just kind of like, how did, how did that make you feel? Well, you know, this will sound weird, but it kind of felt like when I would do my computer science homework in college, because there'd be a moment where I'd be working on putting together a program or in my math classes, working on putting together a proof and I'd be examining, I'm starting here. I need to get here. You know, I need to build the path that gets me there. And often there'd be a moment where I realized I knew how to get from point A to point B before I knew what the path was. You know, mm. I'd, I'd have that sense of, I can do it before. It's like, okay, now I'll have to write it down and make sure that I'm right. And it felt like that. It was that sense of, I can hold these things now. You know, I have a, a spaciousness, a light, a, a way to move forward. And now I need to pause and re-examine these steps and make sure I'm not making a doofus error as I might on my computer science homework, that that sense wasn't always reliable, that sense of I can do it now. But it was that same kind of feeling that I know this has to fit together somehow. And suddenly, as though from a different angle, I can see how. Hmm. Wow. Oh my goodness. And thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm curious, like, what was the receptivity of the people that you were in relationship with? Like, your family, your friends, like what was that like? Well, it's funny because of course you're my friends, you know, and I think this is a different experience, but I wasn't the first Catholic convert they knew. There were a lot of converts in our debate group because, mm. and I think this is a point in favor of the church. If you get young, slightly insane people together to talk about what's true and how they know every night, sorry, not every night, we weren't that crazy, every week, all year in community, in friendship, a lot of them become Catholic. Mm. You know, there's this kind of attractor point of Catholicism. So at college, you know, people took it almost with a, yeah, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> even people who didn't like the church, like that tends to happen. You know, outside the the college community, you know, it was certainly more surprising to my family. But I think one of the things that you know, helped me and helped them is 
I got where I am by following kind of the rules for life my family had given me to seek the truth boldly, to not be afraid of where it leads, and then to live out the truth intensely, not in a milquetoast way. So we certainly disagree about what the truth is, but we don't disagree about how it should be approached or what the stakes are. Mm. Oh my goodness. What a beautiful way to live as well. I love that. And like to live the truth in a way that is bold and, you know, and just with such mutual respect, that's so beautiful. I'm glad that you had that community and that you have that community to surround you. That's beautiful. I think my debate group had a similar ethos, but they put it a little differently too, which is that you should live your beliefs strongly enough that you'll hurt yourself if you're wrong. Mm. It's a way of noticing, you know, and this explains a lot about why we weren't allowed to reserve rooms. I think. <laughs> yeah, I was like, that really explains why, <laughs> why you were not allowed to reserve those library rooms. Yes. Okay. Oh my but goodness. It, it does create the expectation of what we believe matters. Mm. And to a certain extent, if you believe something that's false, it's not just a matter of, you know, well, we all tolerate each other. You know, oh, I'm happy for you if you're happy. It's, I expect if you're wrong, it will worsen your life and vice versa. Mm. Wow. What an amazing challenge to yourself and your peers to really seek for something that's like tangible, something that you can chew on. So that's amazing. I have been asking every guest on our conversion series, what is something that you would tell your younger self? Unfortunately, we're nearing the end of this episode, which like I wish that I could talk. I mean, I feel like you have so much to share. So wise. But what is something, just to kind of end us out, that you would tell younger Leah? What's something that you would share with yourself? I think the big thing is, in some ways, just reiterating my parents' advice, which is you'll never regret seeking the truth ardently. Hmm. And you're going to find things you don't expect, but better than you would have expected to find. Hmm. Wow. That's amazing advice. Yes. And That's so funny how when we think back on younger us's, you know, we think, wow, you'll, if only younger person would have known, like, you'll never regret doing your due diligence. (laughs) And, but then when you're younger, at least for me, I remember being younger and just being like, oh gosh, I just, (laughs) I'll just kind of do, I just am so tired. I don't want to, or, you know, you're so kind of like, you just don't really care, you know, until you get to a point where it feels applicable to your life because certain things in your life start becoming more of a reality, like marriage, like living on your own, like picking a church, like how you're raising a family. It just becomes way more tangible, you know? So that is such amazing advice. Well, Leah, where can we find more information about you and what you are up to? I think one of the best places to find me is my active project right now, other feminisms with an S there.substack.com. It's a place I post weekly, bi-weekly about ways to support women as women in a culture that tends to treat us as defective men. In some ways, it's a chance for me to hold discussions on and live out some of the truths I found attractive to, about the church even before I was part of the church. Wow. I love that. And you have a new subscriber here. So I'm like, (laughs) I'm so excited for that. That's amazing. Thank you so much for being with us. And we really appreciate your story and your time. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too.
This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.